VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Guys, before we get started, you know, word from our sponsor. VinePair, in partnership with Remy Martin, presents the Bartender Talent Academy, an exciting cognac cocktail competition. You can showcase your most creative sidecar cocktail recipe to compete for a chance at the grand prize, a trip to Cognac, France in October to test your skills against the world's best. All you need is a shaker and a passport. Kind of like the idea of like traveling, like getting on my the plane on all I've got to shaker and a passport. Like, <laughs> let's just go. Yeah. I got I'm, Close, maybe a change nothing. underwear. Maybe a change nothing. underwear. <laughs> Anyways, if you want to enter, just visit www.bartendertalentacademy.com for all competition details. Anyways, so uh, it really feels like summer now. It's like it's crazy out there. Oh. It's supposed to be over 100 degrees in Seattle this weekend. Ooh. I know we are trying to avoid too much weather conversation, but that is going to suck. Uh, it is That is about 15 to 20 degrees above where I stopped going outside. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of it feeling, I mean, kind of crazy. So earlier this week, I was in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes. Tell some, us, how much bourbon did you drink? A good amount. <laughs> for some product. Yeah. A little bit regretfully. Yeah, you know. Probably didn't need like one bourbon at the end of the night. On Tuesday, but anyway, so um, it was it was interesting. But like, I have not. This is my first time on the plane since since COVID was over. It's not over, sorry. But since COVID <laughs> is kind of coming out of it, and in Louisville, it felt like COVID was over. It was really weird. It's like I definitely think different parts of the country are very much doing different things. Yeah, I mean, no one was wearing masks. Like, I think I got like weird looks everywhere. I wore a mask. Um, my Uber driver on the way actually back to the airport on Wednesday told me he thought I should take my mask off. And I was like, I'm good with it on. Thank you. And he's like, well, I'm vaccinated, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. He's like, so then take it off. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was just weird. Even though, I don't know, maybe people listening being like, Adam, you should have just, who, who cares? But it was interesting to be in Louisville for sure. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the city definitely feels like very dead in certain ways. Like all of the downtown area where there are offices was pretty quiet. But then in the evenings when the bars were kind of at their fullest, it looked like a very normal city, right? Like no, no sidewalk shelters in terms of like people dining outside. Everyone was inside, no windows open for ventilation. Like windows were closed to conserve air conditioning in, you know, the, the Southern heat and no one with masks. It was really crazy. Joanna, have you been to Louisville? I have been to Louisville for a wedding. I went. That's when I was there. Oh. Probably not the same one, <laughs> the same though. Way. I don't think. Um, I went to the, what, the baseball museum? Yeah, the Louisville Slugger. Louisville Slugger. Yeah. The baseball uh-huh. museum. Is that it? Close enough. <laughs> sort of. They make baseball, baseball bat museum. Yeah. Right, right. That's it. It was nice. Yeah, I didn't get to explore much. I definitely just, I went for a wedding as well and, and definitely drank a lot of bourbon. But it does bring up one of my, I've said this on the podcast before, but I apologize, I'll repeat it. One of my great regrets in life and frustrations was, so the, the re- uh, rehearsal dinner was held at uh, Churchill Downs uh, at, you know, where they hold the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet for, and had, you know, uh, there were, it was not just beer and wine. There were, there were cocktails and all that. But the thing you could not get, which is the one thing you would think going to Churchill Downs you would be able to get is a mint julep. But apparently, <laughs> my my, fr- my my good friend who is the groom, his mom, because his parents were the ones kind of, you know, uh, hosting the, the rehearsal dinner, was worried that people would get too drunk if they had mint juleps. So we were not allowed to have mint juleps. I could go get shots of bourbon, mind you, and <laughs> That's did. That's so funny. 
but and I was so annoyed. I was like, I like, I mean, I may well be back in Kentucky and may well go to Churchill Downs at some point in my life. But I was like, there's a decent chance I'll never be here again. It is the drink that is so iconic for this, not just town, but literally the place I'm standing. And yet I can't get it. Um, yeah, I may have complained about that all night. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's all, I, I could see you complaining about that all night. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Sounds, at all. It's in keeping with me. Yeah, it's keep, keeping with You know, it's it's your brand. Yeah, I got to stay on brand, man. Yeah, it was interesting though. It's it's crazy. There's uh, there's more. I guess there's been an influx of like distilleries that have sort of opened in Louisville. I guess that mm-hmm. wasn't always the case, right? So now you have no. Like, it was surprising to me when I was there. Like I thought I would be able to go to distilleries, and it's like no, you can drive to Lexington, right? And I was like, I'm not renting a car to go to distilleries. That seems like a bad idea. That's definitely more of where they are. And I've actually yeah. been, and I've actually been to Lexington before for work. This is my first time for work in Louisville. Uh huh. But there are a few now. They have like Rabbit Hole, which I think was just bought by Pernod Ricard. Um, okay. They have a huge facility. Like it's this massive like steel and glass facility in this neighborhood of Louisville called Nulu, which was interesting. Uh, obviously, Angel's Envy is sort of right downtown. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was interesting to sort of see. I mean, they really do take bourbon very seriously. There was a lot of – the majority of people that were in town were definitely there for sort of bourbon tourism reasons and sort of like checking it all out. Didn't Old Forester open down there too, right? Like they they have a tasting room. So a lot of so oh, a lot a of room. yeah. Okay. So a lot of like the distilleries have the like so there's just like one street and they call it like Bourbon Row, and a lot of the distilleries have like you know the Old Forester experience, the okay. Maker's Mark okay. experience. So they almost don't like make anything. There no, like show. you can still go to their distillery, but I think they're just trying to catch anyone who like just happens sure. to be in town and it's like oh yeah like. Wanders across the bridge from Ohio, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that was the uh, the thing that was kind of interesting too is that there was a lot of those that sort of felt like, I don't know, going to, you know, the Jameson experience in Dublin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like nothing's being distilled there, but you can go there and sort of experience the brand. Um, but yeah. the only operating, really operating distilleries were, I think those three, there, there might be another one I'm forgetting. And then like Sitzel Weller is like close to the city, but not like really okay. in Louisville. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy how many... Everywhere we went, didn't matter where you are, they had like insane bourbon lists. Did you have a f- single best bourbon? I know that's impossible, but you know, for the sake of our running conceit here that we talk about what we drank. <laughs> I mean, I had some interesting stuff. I had Wilderness Trail, the weeded Wilderness okay. Trail, which is okay. like they're like the the distillery that's like being like hyped more than anything else by like the geeks right now. Okay. I thought it was good. I like, again, I didn't think it was like, it didn't blow me away, but it was, it was good. I still, you know, think that Larceny does really great stuff. Um, and so I had like a Larceny single barrel that was really delicious and very well priced. It's also, you know, you look at these lists now and it's like, holy crap. Like, yeah. you know, for a one ounce pour of some of these liquids, you know, we're getting over 50, 60, $70 a pour. Um, and so that was kind of crazy to just see how exorbitant the prices have been. And you can also tell, like, just like anything, right? Like that whatever's currently hot is sort of what everyone's asking for. So like I would say at least three different people just assumed we were looking for Blantons mm. since that's like the thing now that everybody wants. And so like one of our Uber drivers even was like, hey, guys, like there, I know the three liquor stores that have Blanton's. And I was just kind of like, really? Is like, do you get in your car or like who has Blanton's and where can we get it? Um, Maybe. And it's just so funny that that's the the bourbon that's exploded recently simply because, you know, first of all, I used to be able to get it very easily at liquor stores all over New York. But like also, I don't know, it's good, but I, I don't really understand how that gets hyped all of a sudden and then it just like no one can find it. 
thought you were going to say your Uber driver is just going to offer you like a little nip from his bottle. And I was ah. like, <laughs> I mean, maybe. No. Take the mask off for that one, though. Um, but but that one was that one was quite tasty. Um, I had some other interesting stuff. I had an Evan Williams that was pretty delicious. Um, I had the Old Forester 117 series. That mm. was pretty amazing. It was really, really tasty. It was $35 for a one ounce pour, which is, again, kind of exorbitant, but it was what it was. Yeah. And then, you know, just besides that, we kind of, we had wine and beer because there was, you know, things that people were looking for. I had Tim was my guide. So I was like asking him what I should drink. We had the two of the people I was with had the Elijah Craig toasted barrel that apparently people are like crazy for and the geeks can't find and all that stuff. And that was also really tasty, but it's just, you know, the whole thing with bourbon is so insane with the, uh, the limited releases and the exclusivity and all that. The scarcity whole thing is, is crazy. But it was fun to go down to Louisville. I'm, I'm glad I saw it. Yeah, for sure. Totally. What about you guys? This past weekend, uh, we went to one of our favorite local bars, uh, Brandy Library. And if you're familiar with it, it's a really wonderful spot. It has a really extensive selection of fine spirits. And it's really beautiful inside. They're all like... The walls are completely lined and they're illuminated and it's it's has a lovely lounge setting. And um, so I saw on the menu that they had Westland whiskey mm-hmm. and I wanted to try it, obviously, Ooh. after your chat with Matt Hoffman, Zach. Yep. And so I tried the Sherrywood single malt whiskey, which was really lovely and aromatic and you could really pick up the sherry in it. And um, I also tried the Star Ward uh, Nova single malt Australian whiskey, which I've oh, had cool. before, but um, the bartender poured it for us. And that that's also a really interesting one. It's aged in red wine barrels for two years. Oh, very cool. Really yeah, Australian red wine. And so that's really, it was really warm and spiced. And um, yeah, they were both just really interesting, beautiful expressions. Very cool. Yeah. If you guys haven't listened to the uh, interview I did with Matt Hoffman, um, I mean, I like to think that all of our next round episodes are great, uh, but that one was particularly, I think it's too, it's what they're doing at Westland is very interesting to me um, and has been for, for quite some time. And, and it helps that the, the whiskey is also, I think quite good uh, because interesting is one thing, but it has to taste good. <laughs> yes. Agree. Totally. What about you, Zach? Um, well, you know, I, I think the thing, the two things that I had this, this last week that I uh, sort of am most excited about or was most excited about. So um Adam, you and I did an interview or a, a podcast episode a while back um, talking about the wines of um, Roberto Duero and Rueda. Yeah. And I had one of the bottles that they sent, um, the Martin Sancho uh, Rueda, so white wine made from Verdejo. And for Father's Day, we went out to my dad's house. And my dad, um, as he almost always does when he has a group of people over, makes paella, um, which is good and bad. My, my dad's paella is you know, tasty, but it takes for fucking ever. And, Mm -hmm. um, so, but I, I always try to bring, you know, some, some wines to go with it. And uh, I actually brought a couple of wines. One, um, was a, a Sirtico from Santorini, uh, from a state Argyros. And then the other was this, uh, Martin Sancho Rueda. And, um, I was very pleased at how well it paired. I think, you know, paella is kind of a weird, not a weird dish. It's just a complicated dish to pair because there's a lot going on. Um, and, and so I kind of thought, um, you know, sometimes I've paired it more with like, a lighter bodied white wine, like uh chocolate or something like that. But really you need the sort of richness and unctuousness of something like uh, this Rueda to, to kind of hold up to the, 
the richness that is really kind of a big part of paella. And even though it's got some seafood in it and stuff like that, which, you know, it's, it's we're still talking white wine. Um, it, 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 I think paired really nicely. Um, and then the other thing that I made recently that I've been sort of obsessively tinkering with is um, because we talked about modern classic cocktails and because I have time to do this from time to time, I've been sort of trying to come up with a drink that is a, takes the template of the paper plane, but does something different with it. And so, Interesting. yeah. So my idea, I've, I've long been a big fan of um, drinks that combine aged tequila, chinar, and lime juice. I think the three of those work really, really well together. So you're, you know, three of the four ingredients, basically, conceptually, at least towards a um, paper plane in that you have a sort of, you know, you have your brown spirit, um, in this case, aged tequila, you have your citrus juice, and you have um, something, you have a, you know, sort of a bitter liqueur. Um, obviously, chinar is pretty different than um, Aperol, but tequila is pretty different from whiskey. So um, it's really been that last ingredient that's been bedeviling me so far. Um, and part of it is just, I have a limited range of Amari at home. I mean, I have a few. My first temp- attempt was with Fernet because I was like, well, maybe this kind of minty thing will be interesting. Um, that didn't work so well. Um, it kind of tasted like an ashtray. Uh, unfortunately, I like Fernet, but it, it doesn't always play well in cocktails with others. Uh, and then I've tried um, Amaro Montenegro, which was pretty good. I tried Nonino, but I feel like it kind of got lost in there. So um, I'm open to suggestions from you guys or anyone else out there. If you've got a, a kind of herbal but not overly kind of minty amari or or something else that i should try as this last uh part of the cocktail i'm it's close to being what i want it to be it's just not quite there yet well so here's my question with this so do you think the chinar because you it is so much of a not heavier but fuller flavor than even an aperol or whatever maybe it makes it harder to then also add another amaro that could be, yeah. Um, it's possible that what I need to do is find another ingredient that that goes in a somewhat different direction. Like I've, yeah. I haven't done yet, but I've thought about doing something like dry curacao, like to go more of that orange note that you also get from Aperol, but not as intense. So yeah, that might be the next iteration because it's true that Chinar lends both some of the kind of you know lends a more bitterness and and just kind of impact than than Aperol. So yeah. stay tuned. <laughs> yes, please keep us updated. I will. Yeah, and the other thing that, you know, like I think is worth talking about before we, we jump into today's subject is um, I don't know if you guys saw, I mean, I know Joanna did, but Zach, it's not as impactful for you, but it is really interesting to see that, you know, the the city of New York or the state of New York oh, actually yes, just that. decided to like immediately cancel cocktails to go effective today. Yeah, and Pennsylvania did that like a week or two ago, right? Didn't they roll back all their. Just the, really so it's, stupid. It's, yeah. Just really stupid. I, I really don't understand why. Feeling back to normal to places doesn't mean, you know, I get that it, it's feeling a lot more normal, but that doesn't mean that the places that were hit the hardest have recovered. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, what is it? I just don't understand why it's hurting anyone for these restaurants to be able to still sell cocktails to go. Like, and a lot of these restaurants invest, I mean, it just, just like another sort of like kick in the gut, right? Of like, you know, restaurants are just trying to do what they need to do to survive. They are given this lifeline, they make investments to make sure that this is still like, you know, is food safe and is high quality and all this stuff. And now it's just like with no warning, Oh, this is done tomorrow. You know, it just really sucks. It really does. And I think the, the thing that's fascinating is how I would be curious to know. I mean, I didn't see specifically what Cuomo said about this or what the 
I'm forgetting the name of the Pennsylvania governor, but wh- whatever the, you know, the sort of people who are um, either pushing for this or, or, or directing it from the state level. But like, as you said, who is this hurting and what is the, what is the reason to be like, okay, we need to not only, you know, sort of end these policies, but end them instantly. Like it'd be one thing if they said, Hey, you know, we think that by September 30th or something, we can wrap this up. Right. Like, okay, fine. You get through summer, probably there's less interest in to go cocktails in the winter, like et cetera, et cetera. But just to kind of drop that on everyone with, you know, essentially zero notice and zero lag time. Yeah. just seems like who, whose interests are being served by that. And and I mean that kind of seriously, like I wonder if who behind the scenes is lobbying on this. Cause that doesn't seem like something that happens that suddenly without at least a little bit of pressure that maybe we're not aware of. Yeah, it has to be right. I mean, someone had to have, someone had to have lobbied. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, at all. Yeah. If you know, podcast at com, we'll call them out. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, it's very, it's very strange. You know, the whole thing is very strange. Why it's so abrupt is very strange. And now it does make me wonder. I was like super bullish that like the, you know, the shelters or like the outdoor seating in, in the street were going to be here to stay. And now like, I really wonder if that's the case. Yeah. Although I think there's a, there's at least a, those things are so much more visible, right? That I think it, there might be more pushback from people from people who've really enjoyed having that, and including the restaurants and things. If they go away, you know, it's it, it to go cocktails are visible in a sense, but they're not something that that New Yorkers or whatever see all day every day, right? Like you walk out, I'm sure for you both of you, you walk outside of your door that you're seeing these structures on the street anywhere you go, and I think that probably maybe lends them a chance of being more permanent. But I agree, I think it's no one, you know, we're, we'll see, right? Back to normal, quote unquote sometimes means losing things that we thought we had gained in this period of time. Yeah. And also just to Adam's point, like these were such significant investments on behalf of bars and restaurants to erect these, in some cases, like full structures. Um, And yeah, it would just be such a shame. And abruptly, that would be just horrible. Yeah, it would just be the worst. Yeah. So, (laughs) Well, moving on to talking about continuing to open up. So today's, you know, big discussion uh, is all about happy hour and sort of what the future of happy hour is going to look like now that we are slowly starting to make our way back to the office. I think we're going to see more and more people go back to work. That's my sort of um, hypothesis. I think a lot of you're already hearing from people who have tried the hybrid model and for a lot of businesses, they're saying it's not working Um, that it's, it's very hard for, there to, to be, you know, a group of people in the office and a group of people on Zoom and to feel like the meeting is productive or that there's like collaboration happening, sort of hearing like it needs to be all of one or all of the other. So I think that that's what you'll start to see is, you know, some people are like, look, we're just going to, we're permanently work from home or work from home on these days specifically, whereas everyone else, you know, other days we're in the office. But so I, I do think we're going to start seeing more and more people come back to the office. Um, and as that happens, you know, the question then becomes, are we going to see this massive return of happy hour and what will happy hour look like? And uh, I think it's a, you know, it's an interesting thing to ponder. So what do you guys think? I think another question that I've been thinking about just in this conversation is like, sh- at this point right now, should there be a happy hour? <laughs> and I think, I, I guess I mean that more from like a, a financial point of perspective, like with businesses just getting back on their feet do does it make sense for them to have happy hours and should should we be expecting that as patrons 
Um, or should we all just be willing to pay, pay full price for the next, uh, you know, while? That's an interesting, a very, very interesting thought. Like, should we actually have happy hour? And I think I'm not sure. I mean, this goes back to sort of the conversation we'd had a while ago, Zach, about, you know, um, pricing models mm-hmm. and yep. whether sort of like, you know, happy hour is beneficial because it brings new people into the, to, you know, into the bar at a time when maybe they wouldn't come into the bar. I'm so, I don't know. I mean, cause I guess my sort of thought was is happy hour originally has existed because it's a time when the bar is not that crowded and you want to get more people to the bar, but are people just, and are people going to go to happy hour at all? Well, so I'll talk about this from the perspective of, you know, a a thing that was always interesting to me is Seattle has had a really like kind of alarmingly vibrant happy hour uh, culture for a long time. And here I think it's, it's born out of maybe two sort of related or two interrelated um, things. One is like the, the truth of it, which is that, you know, here in Seattle, especially in the fall and winter, it gets dark really early. And so there is a, there's always been this thing where like, you know, people, it, it certainly, you know, as compared to somewhere like New York, you know, people just in general eat earlier, you know, are done with their evenings earlier, you know, bars close earlier, um, all those sorts of things. And so that all kind of naturally shifts the business earlier in the evening. On top of that, you have a sort of, you know, a kind of widespread, I don't know, frugality, cheapness, whatever you want to call it. And what's interesting to me is, you know, talking to people I worked with over the years who moved to Seattle from other places, you know, their happy hour in a lot of other places is, okay, maybe you get a dollar off a beer or $2 off a glass of wine or something, right? It's not what it was in Seattle for a lot of restaurants, which is like, here's an extensive menu, here's real drink specials, here's like, basically, it's more like what we talked about, as you said, with like the dynamic pricing, it's more like the blue plate special, right? Like here, or the early bird special, like here, come in and eat a full meal and and all that, but eat it at five o'clock, not at seven o'clock. And so, you know, you kind of have this, you know, back and forth about whether those things are really fundamentally different. But I think the thing that is, that I'm curious about, and it feeds back into your initial question, Adam, about whether how office culture will affect this is so many of the restaurants here. And I think this is true for a lot of the the country, especially places maybe besides New York with where, you know, you just have incredible density. The downtown areas are, as you said, in like in Louisville, like the slowest areas to recover. There's not a lot of business there during the day. And I think the question is kind of these places that maybe built a lot of their business around the idea of capturing, you know, happy hour business. And then maybe that transitions into dinner business. If people aren't in the office, Will they still come to these parts of the city for happy hour if the pricing is good enough? Maybe. Will they, if they're part of their team is in the office? Well, maybe if they're only working in the office two or three days a week, maybe those two or three days are their like go out nights, right? They're they're in the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So Wednesday and Friday nights, like, hell yeah, let's go out. You know, maybe we're not there every day, but we're going to take advantage of being in this area. So, I mean, this isn't an answer, I guess. I will be curious to hear what you both think, but I do think that, if I were an operator in a lot of these places, I would be cautiously dipping my toe back into happy hour promotions. Um, and, and maybe we can address that profitability side of it in a moment. But but I do think that, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see in some sense, because I really think 
you know, whether it's, you know, business lunches, whether it's happy hour, like how the business community responds and returns to restaurants and bars is a huge unanswered question yet. And um, one that is going to be hugely impactful for a lot of these businesses. I will just add the last piece here, which is that my wife who works, you know, for a big four accounting firm has just started to get some of those like first, like, Hey, we should have a work group happy hour. So like, and her business has been pretty conservative about coming back to the office. She's still, everyone is still fully work, work from home until after Labor Day at the earliest. Um, I mean, they are allowing people to come in on occasion, but basically it's all still work from home. But you can see, A, there's a lot of desire for this. And B, like getting everyone together for a virtual happy hour just ain't cutting it anymore. And And kind of understandably, those are not super fun. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to come back in a big way. Um, and I think it's going to come back in a big way just based on like what I'm already seeing in terms of people who are asking to meet up in person. Like I was supposed to have even a call tomorrow with someone and literally as we're sitting here, cause obviously as we record my emails open, um, and, and, uh, <laughs> that and is not a surprise. <laughs> yeah. And it's literally like, Hey Adam, would you like to meet in person tomorrow? Instead? I see we're meeting towards the end of the day it would be great to ga- grab a drink instead of sitting on zoom. I think there's a lot of that that's going to happen. Um, and people who are going to be really excited about it. And I, I think that dipping your toe back into happy hour is not a bad idea, whether that happy hour means that maybe there's just like some, some food that's sort of out or whether, you know, there is, like you said, that somewhat of a a discount on drinks, maybe it's even the first drink and not the second, right? Maybe there's some, you know, maybe there's some sort of limit. That's not the, the time limit. Maybe it's look, you get two, two drinks at this price and then we go to full price with you. Like, I don't know, uh, if, if restaurants are worried, but I think, you know, there's going to be such a slam that most restaurants usually and bars usually said they made a lot of money at happy hour um, in the past. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's it's something where co- going back to that is going to be really exciting for a lot of people. Yeah, I think I think you also make a really good point, uh, Zach, about the places like the downtown areas that have been so depressed over the past 16 months, like the ones who have managed to stay alive and stay open, that it will probably be a really big part of their business strategy to draw people in the ones who are returning to the office. And I think, you know, to the, to the question that you raised, Joanna, about whether we should be doing this and profitability, Adam makes a point that I think is a good one, which is like, you can definitely make money at happy hour. I mean, happy hour is a different financial model than fine dining dinner service or something like that. But it, you know, look, I mean, I I remember being not astonished by this, but like kind of impressed by it. Like, some of the most profitable uh, bars and restaurants that are out there are places that are churn and burn, right? It's fast paced. They get people in, they get people out and yeah, maybe you're paying less, but like you get enough volume and that adds up quickly. Um, I think the, the questions that we can't yet answer are, you know, how will this be affected by what we've all been seeing and hearing about, you know, issues with um, a labor crunch, because I think you think about how, you know, whether it's lunch service, whether it's happy hour service, you know, kind of fast paced service is, is demanding and challenging and requires a decent amount of staff in a lot of cases to get through, um, to just get things cooked, to get things, you know, drinks made and poured and on tables and, you know, payment process and all that stuff. And, and this is one that I, I wanted to mention in this context, it also, there's also this upcoming other crunch that I don't know if you guys are fully aware of, but I've been hearing about it from people I know on the supply side, which is yes. we have a huge wine crunch coming and it's almost all concentrated in 
the kind of wines that get poured at happy hour. You mean there's, there's going to be a ton on the market or there's not? No, really? no, no. There's going to be a tremendous demand, lack of it. Right? Interesting. It's all still in, it's either, it either a lot of it, you know, one thing that I, again, has not been talked about a ton is how much less wine got made in 2020 in Europe than in previous years. And some of that was COVID. Some of that was weather. Some of that was sort of broader economic uncertainty surrounding COVID. And, but you know, you want, the problem is you don't make the wine. It doesn't exist, right? You can't, it's not beer. It's not spirits. Even you can't always ramp up production. And it's not like you necessarily could store and, and, you know, you don't, I mean, some things you might have a back inventory on certainly some suppliers and distributors here in the U S might have, but between, I also mentioned tariffs and mentioned shipping issues. Like there is an incredible crunch right now. I mean, I was talking to a, a friend who works for a distributor. He's like, I have like, He's like, I have almost no under $10 European wine, like sparkling wine, white wine, the rosé is just starting to arrive, but it's also been delayed. Like we are in this period. And those are things that, that if you're pouring wine and happy hour, you're relying on that category, right? You're not, your wholesale cost has got to be five, six, $7 a bottle. And yeah, there's some maybe really, really big production stuff that you might be able to get, but you also probably in some places that you might be just fine. But if you're trying to not pour, you know, the really big production stuff, um, or at least that's recognizable to people from the, the, you know, stacks and stacks in the grocery store. Um, you have kind of limited options right now. And it's unclear as far as I can tell if any of that stuff is going to make it to the U S in time for the summer. Like I, it's seeming less and less like it will, because we're already in summer, as you pointed out at the beginning, Adam. And so we, we are facing this other crunch that I, like I said, that is, is real for restaurants and bars, which is like, well, what do, what the hell do I pour people? Like, there's just not, I mean, there's some stuff out there, but it's, it, you know, there's a lot of competition for it, obviously. And um, I don't know what the answer is going to be. It would be a, a thing for domestic producers to think about. Although, again, it's hard to pivot in this, you know, it's not like you can right, at this crank point. a bunch more out for next month. But, but you know, opportunities abound um, because there's obviously demand for happy hour pours. And I think there's uh, a lot of struggle meeting those that demand and will be going forward for at least a few more months. Okay. Let me ask a question. <laughs> how many people do you think what percentage of people do you think order wine for happy hour a lot depending on where you are i mean when we did happy hour in my restaurants i would say at least a 40 45 percent of what we poured was wine interesting but it was a restaurant on a bar yes yeah i mean I th- yes if you go to uh you go to a you know a dive bar or something yeah people are you know drinking whatever their $5 well drinks or something like that's a different story. And there's plenty of that stuff. I promise. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I, well, I think we're kind of talking about the whole, the whole place. again. And again, you think about kind of what we're talking about, right? Like there's the happy hour places that, that serve 23 year olds, right. Who are looking for one kind of thing. And then there's the happy hour places that serve us or people like us. And there, I think you're much more likely to go get a glass, see people drinking wine. I mean, that's my, always been my experience. So I think that's what's so weird for me is that I never really in New York uh, got out in time to have <laughs> happy hour. So I, you know, by the time I left the office, it was like not happy hour. So um, yeah. I'm so not aware of like what sort of nicer bars or restaurants where I would have had wine even did happy hour. I don't know, Joanna, what about you? Happy hour. Yeah. To, I mean, similar to Adam, I feel like that was something that was a special occasion if we were out of the office <laughs> um, early enough to, to, partake in happy hour, but, um, I, I often would get wine at happy hour. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's going to come back in, in a very strong way. I think 
for the people that live in the city, like are are we going to have as many people who are like trying to hit a happy hour location before they go to the train? No, because I think a lot of people who who left these the cities for the suburbs may try to you know negotiate some way to work from home still. Whether they're at a you know a, a company that will allow that is up to debate. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people over the last week have seen you know the really famous like speech that went around from the uh, the CEO of J.P. Morgan who basically said. You know, if you can come into the city to go out to eat, you can come into the city to go to work. So it'll be it'll be really interesting to see who takes that approach, and like if you want to make you know a New York salary, you need to live in New York, and then who takes what what companies take other approaches and basically say no, you know this is fine. We you know we're saving so much on the office space and things like that that we're we're still cool with you working from home, and then and then how that impacts happy hour because like I don't know if like like when I was when I've been working from home during the pandemic, uh, I don't think I would have like left my apartment at, you know, 530 and be like, oh, let me hit a happy hour location in my neighborhood. Like for me, it's it's like happy hour is like a very transitional, like leaving the office on sure. your way home experience. Um, so like in those towns, for example, like, I don't know, like will happy hour take place in like smaller town, like in the suburbs where people are like working from home still. I, I'm pretty suspect, but like in the core business districts of cities where people are going to go back to the office, I think it'll boom. One last related question. Do you think we're going to see the the continued return and resurgence of uh, like the bottomless mimosa brunch? I think so. Did it did it ever go away? Yeah. When did it well, go I away? Mean, <laughs> COVID related. I think, you know, you couldn't get a bottomless mimosa to go, I'm pretty sure. Oh. <laughs> right. Be impressed but if you could. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel, like the, I feel like the bottomless mimosa came back with a force last summer. Like I feel like the second basically restaurants were doing outdoor dining and people realized it was, I mean, what really happened because of COVID, which I think we're going to continue to see was the rise of massive amounts of day drinking because all of these people, all these places had outdoor, you know, spots and that's where people felt safe and they didn't really want to do it at, at night. And then as it was getting into the fall, it was getting cooler, right? So everyone was drinking during the day. I mean, I, there was several occasions where I remember having to come into the city for something um, and like walking through the East Village or Murray Hill and just like tripping over very inebriated people <laughs> who <laughs> clearly had a lot of fun at Bottomless Brunch. What's it? What's do they say? Nature is healing. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I think I think that's going to continue to be just a huge thing, especially in the cities that have always like sort of taken brunch seriously, right? Like New York likes its brunch. So yeah, that, that the bottomless mimosa thing, I've never been able to get behind personally. Me either. That's just because I've seen what goes into the both the orange juice and the sparkling wine that goes into it typically, and I want no part of either personally. Well, I mean, it's never been my thing, but uh, but I also, you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something crazy. I'm not the biggest day drinker. Like I like to day drink once yeah. in a while, but I'm really not a big day drinker. I'm bad at it, right? <laughs> Joanna, you said you're bad at it too. I'm so bad at it. Yeah, it's terrible. Like I'll always be like, okay, you know, I'm really tired. I gotta I'm go home. Tired. Yeah, I'm really tired, and like I, now I can't meet anyone for dinner. <laughs> um, I, I'm not good at it, and I don't. You know, I know I'm from like a big college town. You know, grew up there. I was a bad tailgater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I was like, I was the guy that was like, I'm not going to drink before we go in the stadium. Cause then I don't get to watch the game, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, well, and I guess with Auburn, at least that was a, that was a reasonable. Right. Uh, if you, were, if you, went, you know, some college towns, maybe that was the point. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like, Oh, we don't want to watch the game, but yeah, I've never been like the best day drinker. Like I, 
Um, even for this weekend, I have a little party that I'm having. Yeah. Happy uh, birthday, by the way. Oh. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted everyone to know it's my birthday. By the way, if you are a champagne brand and would like to sponsor my birthday, reach out. Uh, Anyways, um, or anyone else, I'll take whatever. Um, but yeah, so like I wanted, like I want to do a picnic in the park with some of our good friends, but like, um, I wanted it to start at like four thirty or five, and Naomi was like, "Don't you think that's a little late for picnic?" I'm like, "No, I don't want a day drink. <laughs> I'm like, I want an evening drink, and then go I mean, home." It's a good thing like, about having a birthday, you know, in early summer. It's going to be light out plenty long. It's exactly like cutting it short at seven. Exactly, but you know, it's like a just not a great day drinker. Yeah. Well. None of us are perfect, Adam. It's okay. None of us are perfect. <laughs> Anyways, very, really interesting conversation. I, I actually am looking forward to a happy hour. I would like, I'm going to have my first happy hour actually next Tuesday. Oh, well, maybe, uh, maybe if I ever make it to New York, we'll have an official yeah. podcast happy hour. That would be sure. awesome. That would be awesome. <laughs> Sponsors, podcast at vinepair.com. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I'll see you next weekend. Yes. Happy birthday. Thank you. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again. Thanks for listening to the show. And just as a reminder, VinePair, in partnership with Remy Martin, is presenting the Bartender Talent Academy an exciting cognac cocktail competition. You can showcase your most creative sidecar cocktail recipes to compete for a chance at the grand prize, a trip to cognac France in October to test your bartending skills against the world's best. All you need is a shaker and a passport. So visit www.bartendertalentacademy.com for all competition details and to enter. Hope to see you there.